0: Welcome, everyone, to the New Books Network Native American Studies channel. This is Ryan Tripp here again with California author and editor Robert Aquinas McNally to discuss his new book, The Modoc War, a story of genocide at the dawn of America's Gilded Age. Welcome, Mr. McNally.
1: Thank you, and good to hook up with you.
0: First off, what we usually do on the podcast for both new and uh, and uh, previous listeners is discuss the cover of the book. Now, the book is the cover of the book is actually based off an interior, interior image that's featured in said book. Would you like to? Would you care to elaborate on your on both the photograph and your reasons for selecting it for the cover?
1: yeah sure the The photograph shows two Modoc captives at the end of the war. It was this photograph was taken the war ended basically on June the first eighteen seventy three This photograph was taken within the first ten days of their captivity. and it's of two men, uh, uh and John, who was a mid fifty year old uh, war leader among the Modocs and Kent Poos or Captain Jack, who was the kind of, he was the overall civil leader of this particular group of Modocs that were involved in this insurgency against the United States Army and the United States government. And the, it, it shows these two men after capture. Their, their, their hair has been cut. The Modocs wore their hair quite long and their, their hair has been cut off and they're dressed in really old clothes. They look terribly shabby. They look thin. And they're both they're also shackled together uh, with you know iron shackles, and then of course their hands are also shackled. And so when the 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 University of Nebraska Press and I really decided upon the the subtitle, "A Story of Genocide at the Dawn of America's Gilded Age," this particular image to me really captured the, the 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 kind of grinding defeat these people had undergone. And what even makes it more poignant was that less than four months later, both Sconch and John and Captain Jack were hanged uh, along with two other Modocs uh, for war, war crimes. So this particular image captures this moment of defeat and what it was going to lead to, and that was why why the the press and I decided upon this one as the cover image.
0: What shaped your study to the what? What approach shaped your study to the of the eighteen seventy two to eighteen seventy three Modoc War, and uh, what does Modoc refer to? Uh, I know specifically Lake of the Extreme South, and can you also touch on your approach to extermination and genocide in the context of the UN legal definitions of, of genocide?
1: Sure. The let's let's start with the easy one first, which is what Modoc means. Um the Modoc people and the Klamath people who are right to their due north were until the late part of the 18th century basically the same Indian nation. They spoke the same language. They, con- they were sometimes rivals, but they were often in business together, um, like during the fur trade. And, and, and also there was an unsavory part being a slave trade up along the Columbia River. And they, and they intermarried a lot. Uh, but somewhere in it, right around 1780, 1790, um, the two groups separated and began to identify themselves as different. And the Klamaths live primarily around Upper Klamath Lake. This is right along the uh, border of California and Oregon in the upper Klamath Basin. The Klamath is a very large river that comes out of that area and then it goes all the way down into the Pacific. And uh, it's, I think it's the third largest river on the Pacific coast after uh, the Columbia and the, um, the Sacramento. And so the Modocs got the name the Modoc because in their language it referred to the south. They are south of the Klamaths. So they inhabited the southern range uh, of this former, formerly unified nation, primarily around what is known as Lower Klamath Lake, Tule Lake, and Clear Lake, and there's a lot of little creeks and so forth in there. So that's the easy part. Um, the the how, did, how this book came to be is is a long story, probably longer than you want to listen to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that I I actually started thinking about it forty years ago, and when I was on a vacation and I ran into the uh, Lava Beds National Monument way up in this extremely lonely corner of California, and I learned that there was this war had gone on, and I thought, wow, this I bet this would make a really good novel. And of course, then life overtook me, and I had to make you know make more money, and I had two boys, and I was a single dad, and so forth, and so I just put the, the story aside, and then when um I got, I was able to stop working so much full time in around 2011. I really went back to it and I thought it would first be a, a kind of collage nonfiction book, something, if Annie Dillard had written it, it would have been an Annie Dillard book. And then that failed very quickly. I realized it was a, a dead end. So then I tried the novel and I actually wrote the entire draft of a novel, 120,000 words. And it too, I realized flopped it because it wasn't a proper novel. But in the course of going through the story, I realized it really was a narrative nonfiction. And which is to say that you're using a novelist techniques of, techniques of storytelling so that the story is told as if it were a novel. It sort of unfolds in front of you. But by the same token, everything that's in the book, every, every single fact has to be verified. So, if you say the sun was shining brightly and the temperature was 55 degrees, it needs to be had. You have to have a source that says the sun was shining brightly and it was 55 degrees. So, it, it, it imposes a, a kind of a, um, a sort of form or limit on what you can do with it. You have to write accurately to the actual facts. And it was as that curiously is what really led me to this notion of genocide. Um, at first, I kind of resisted that, that notion. Um, and it, it, you know it was almost too big a notion. Uh, but as I dug deeper and deeper into the story, it, it was the only thing that really started making sense. And it's particularly when you look at the war how it started. In a way, it goes back all the way to at least 1846, and then it doesn't really end in 1873. There's a lot of stuff going on, repercussions of this war that stretch well up into around 1880. And so when you look at that whole period, you begin to see that there was a concerted, often government-backed campaign to wipe these people out and to, to exterminate them and to dispossess them from their land. Um, you can see it in the, the basic statistics of the whole thing. In, in 1846, which was when California became um, an American possession, uh there were somewhere between 1 and 2000 modoc people. Uh in the 1850s there were a whole series of uh, militia campaigns that went up in the northeastern california whose purpose was to exterminate indians. And we don't know exactly how many people they killed, but by 1864 when all the modocs gathered to negotiate a peace treaty and to set up what is known as the Klamath reservation, there were they were down to fewer than 350. And this was a result of a combination of epidemics, there was particularly that measles epidemic in 1847, a whole series of militia campaigns, and then consistent harassment and often murder by white settlers moving into the area. And so that's what led me to the notion of genocide. And um, there've been two books written about the California genocide that were just coming out as I began this book. very scholarly works, uh, one by a guy named Brendan Lindsay called Murder State and the other one called An American Genocide by Benjamin Madley. And they both looked in this very rigorous way that historians do at whether what happened in California between 1846 and 1873 conforms to the UN definition of a genocide, uh, which of course, wasn't actually um, a crime until 1848. When, excuse me, 1948, when it was adopted by the UN. And so that, so this is a kind of a hindsight. It's a matter of looking back at this part of our history to determine was this a genocide? And my answer is yes. And the word that was used officially, or you find it in a lot of newspaper accounts, you find it in a great many political speeches of that time, particularly in the 1850s and 1860s in California is the word extermination. And that that was that was the official policy of the state of California towards Indians in that period. And um, it had a tremendous effect on what happened to the Modocs. So that's that's the the, the the long answer to that particular um, to your to your question. <laughs>
0: So let's discuss um, some about the events leading up to the Modoc War. You argue in your book, and you argue in your book that in 1849, after a measles epidemic, continued U.S. emigration into the uh, Klamath Basin, the Modocs began to fight back by attacking wagon trains at a place called Waagagana, or Little Canyon, and later known to Americans as Bloody Point. What exactly happened at Bloody Point? Yeah, how, did US, like
1: yeah.
0: how did U.S. reprisals buttress the idea that genocide was the point and purpose of California's mid-century posse's and militias? Mm-hmm. If possible, can you touch on uh, the machinations of the how you, desc- what you what you you describe as the two Jessies as well?
1: Sure. Uh, yes. Go ahead.
0: As well as, of course, uh, rumors of sexual slavery. Um, um, in the, in the sort of this milieu of the events leading up to the Modoc War.
1: Okay, let, let's go at this one kind of chronologically. You're right. In, in, in it was not until 1849. At first, the, the Modocs, there was a large amount of, of settlers began kind of passing through the Modoc territory beginning in 1846. That was a year that the Applegate brothers, who were early um, Oregon pioneers, Americans, this clear back in the time when Oregon was not clearly an American territory. Um, organized or and, and surveyed an emigrant uh, route that went from southern Oregon, excuse me, all the way to Fort Hull in Idaho. It's kind of an alternative to going up around on the Columbia River and then coming south. And that began bringing a lot of people in through the Modoc country. Um, the, the first really bad repercussion of that was this measles epidemic, which was because, you know, these emigrant these trains of the time were sort of like um, they were like public health crises. I mean, they—they they, they were leaving, you know, dead animals, lots of feces, both animal and human. They were uh, contaminating the water, cutting the firewood, shooting game. Um, they often traveled with a lot of cows and horses or oxen, sometimes pigs, and these were eating up all the land, all the the the, the pasturage, many of the root crops that the Modocs depended upon. And so, in 1849, they began fighting back, and they did it at this place called uh, Bloody Point, which is right on the eastern shore of Thule Lake, and it's on the on the immigrant route. And it was a spot that the immigrants had been crossing up on a very high plateau, which was very arid and a kind of a hard place to get wagons down. And they would come down to tule Lake, and there was this lovely green meadow, and uh, that was a great place. It looked like a wonderful place to camp. And they didn't pay attention to the fact that it was a pretty narrow strip, and there was almost no way in, and, and there was only one way out. And so the Monarchs could slip in there and slip in at night, hide themselves, and then ambush the wagon train at daybreak. And That was kind of their favorite mode of attack. The, we, the, the curious thing about all this is we don't actually know how many wagon trains they attacked, nor how many people they actually killed. Uh, there was a number that flew around during this period of 300 yet the guy who came up with it, who was a, uh, an officer, senior officer in the Oregon militia says flat out that it was a padded number. He took this factor and that factor and added them together and multiplied by five or something like that. And he comes up with this number of 300 there. There's no doubt that there were attacks on wagon trains and there were definitely people killed, but there were no 300 people killed. Uh, For one thing, the Indians were only equipped with bows and arrows, and they didn't have guns, and most of the immigrants had guns. So they had to catch them, basically, you know, catch them, get the drop on them, and then attack. However, as you can well imagine, these attacks caused considerable panic in the settler communities in southern Oregon and Northern California. And um, that was the reason why these militias were organized. And they're also among these, these rumors of the attacks were uh, stories of sexual slavery that Modoc warriors or fighters would capture young white women and hold them as sexual slaves. And uh, this story, you know, obviously gave a particular pretext to attacking back because it was not only that they were defending the wagon trains, but they were defending a sort of idealized Christian white womanhood. Whether that actually happened, I doubt it, simply because these particular stories seem to go across the country. There are stories of sexual slavery by Indian men uh, that you can find from the East Coast to the West, and and they, they are strangely repetitive, even as it is that the cultures, different Native cultures vary considerably. But it was like the attacks on wagon trains. It provided this pretext of, of defense, a sense of innocence, even as the militias organized and went up into the to the arid steppe country of northeastern California looking to kill Indians. Um, it was um, there's a kind of a common pattern in these extermination campaigns that if the the targets of the campaign fight back, it stops being an extermination and starts becoming A war and the acts of war then obscure what is the underlying dynamic going on here. And that was extremely true in the Modoc country in the 1850s.
0: Can you uh, narrate or touch on a little bit the uh, significance of the eighteen seventy two bloodshed, subsequent bloodshed along the Lost River, as well as Tool Lake, and then the U.S. Calvary's um, consequent raids on Modoc villages. What, what if, if what, if, what are the significances, if any, of these skirmishes and igniting the war? Um, and in doing so, can you also perhaps address um, what? What ultimately pushed rancher and former uh, pro-slavery Democrat John Fairfield, longtime patron of the Modoc people, to fight against them, Um, if possible? Can you elaborate on on on, the 1872 bloodshed and then Fairfield? Sure. Um,
1: To give you a little bit of background, after all this. Uh, you know the, the, the Modocs have been killed down to fewer than 350 people, and by the mid 1860s, the situation for all Indians across Northern California and Southern Oregon was desperate. There was a lot of starvation um, because, I mean, most of their good country had been was being taken up by by whites. Uh, there was a there was a lot of sexual slavery, not by Indians but by whites, because there were there was a paucity of white women. And so typically, though, particularly the gold miners were really bad at this. They would go out and basically kidnap Indian women and hold them as as concubines or, or prostitutes. And then days the, the Indian men would fight back and they'd get killed and on and on. So in 1864, the the Klamis, the Modocs and the Yahooskin Paiutes signed a peace treaty. That set up something, the Klamath Reservation, which was basically along the east and north sides of Upper Klamath Lake. and it was primarily Klamath country. Um, so the Klamaths didn't have to move. The Modocs and the Euskin pyots had to move onto that reservation. the The problem with this treaty was it was not funded for five years. So there was no way for these people basically to eat. So many of the Modocs actually went onto the reservation. And then very quickly realizing that there was nothing to eat, they left. And one particular group um, had settled back into these camps or winter villages along Lost River. Lost River is a um, small tributary, small smallish stream that flows from Clear Lake on the California side up into Oregon and circles around and comes back down into Tule Lake. And they had a couple of villages, big ones, right north on the northern shore of Tule Lake, about a mile from the lake shore. And those villages had been there for some time. I mean, like a thousand years. <laughs> and um, the the um, Oregon Bureau of Indian Affairs superintendent, the man named A.B. Neacham, managed to sort of co- both cajole and persuade the Modocs on that uh, those two villages to go back onto the reservation. And this was right as it on the new year of 1870. They showed up there on New Year's Day, 1870. Very quickly, they realized there still wasn't any food. And they were killing their own horses to feed. And by spring, when they were able to fish again, they left the reservation and they went back into those villages. So this set up a situation in which these Indians are living off the reservation. And the treaty says they're supposed to be living on it. A.B. Meacham was um, succeeded by a man named uh, o- O'Donnell who who had much less experience with Indians than Meacham ever had. And he decided it was time to move the Modocs back onto the reservation. And so he told the cavalry, he got uh, approval from Washington to do this. He told the cavalry to go down to the Lost River Villages and tell the Modocs to move it, get back on the reservation. And if they didn't go, to arrest the leaders and then force the rest of the Indians back onto the reservation. The Indy, the Modoc, this happened on, that was on November the 28th, 1872. Uh, by the next morning, the cavalry shows up on the, on the Modoc's doorsteps. They had no idea they were being given such an ultimatum. And very quickly, um, a gunfight broke out. And in the course of that gunfight, there were also, besides this rather small cavalry patrol, it was only about 40 men, which was way too few. Uh, there were about eight or 10 uh, white settlers from Oregon who had gone along to, quote, help, unquote, uh, the army. and um, They were basically a posse of vigilantes. And they got involved in the gunfight. And um, they very quickly killed two children. One was an infant. One was a six-year-old. At least one woman, maybe as many as three. And as the Modocs are evacuating their village, the villages, the... Um, uh, some of the men from one of those villages decided that they were going to take revenge on the settlers who had killed their women and children. It was a, cu- a custom in Modoc warfare. In fact, all in that whole p- corner of California and Oregon, that women and children were not to be touched during war. Um, they did not kill them under any circumstances. It just did not happen. And so, this killing absolutely inflamed. Uh, there was nine Modoc men who rode around the eastern shore of Chuli Lake in the direction of the Lava Beds, which was where all the Indians were headed um, in order to take refuge because they were now under attack from the army. And they killed between 11 and 13 white settlers, all of them male. And one of the leaders, a guy named Hooker Jim, made a real point of telling um, a woman and her daughter-in-law as he spared them that Modocs don't kill women, white people do. Well, as you can imagine, this this these killings added something just enormous to the um, the whole mix here. First of all, the Indians are supposedly defying the the law to get, the, the treaty to get back on the reservation. And at the same time, they have killed 11 to 13 white men. They themselves only lost, I think it was one, just simply one man was killed in that attack, and then these these um, women and children. And so that sets up what then becomes the Modoc War. That happened November the 29th. And pretty quickly, the army begins uh, reinforcing and moving in. The Indians have moved into an area called the Lava Beds, which is on the southern shore of Tulu Lake. And there was one particular area of it right in the northwestern corner of the uh, Lava Beds, which is a slightly raised plateau that gives you a very good um, kind of a gunnery range. You can see what's moving all around you very readily. And there's a lot of natural... Sorts of trenches and gun emplacement sites and so forth that the Indians had known from long exposure to them. They knew this country very, very well. And they very cleverly reinforced it to make what amounted to a fort. And so this is when the war really starts to set up. There are about 170 Modocs in the stronghold. Um, Of those people, only 55 are men or older boys big enough to hold a rifle. The rest are old people, women, and children, and they're facing a growing force of of uh, cavalry uh, artillery and uh, infantry from the army, plus two groups of state militia, uh, two companies from Oregon, and one company from california and That company from California was headed by John Fairchild Fairchild was a rancher who had a big spread um, along lower Klamath Lake and he was, un, unlike the, the, the Oregon settlers, who had a lot of animosity towards the Modocs and the Klamaths, for that matter, uh, Fairchild actually used Modocs as cowboys because he recognized that he, he was running this big cattle and horse operation, that these were the people who really knew the countryside. And so if he, if he lost the animals, the Modocs would likely know where they were. And so he used them as cowboys, and he had a perfectly good relationship going with them, employing them. Many of the people who were living with him actually learned to speak English, worked in his house. Uh, but when the war broke out, there was this kind of horrible thing that happened in the Klamath Basin where everybody had to choose sides based on race. And so here's Fairchild, who has been friendly with the Modocs, uh, actually employing them as cowboys and house servants, finds himself leading up the California militia that is involved in the very first attack on the uh, on the stronghold in the middle of January of 1873. Um, And he found that experience so distasteful that he swore he would never do it again. And he didn't. Um, So then he actually became a, uh, something of an intermediary in the, in the the further course of the war as it goes on. Um, So that's that there, that kind of gives you the, the basic setup to the struggle in the early days.
0: Can you, uh, Elaborate a bit on um, the there was an, an initial surrender offer um, from the Modoc, and this involved uh, Kimpus, and um, I would actually like you to um, elucidate Kimpus's role in the war um, and the circumstances of this initial uh, surrender surrender offer.
1: Sure, let's. It, 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 there's a series of things that lead up to this whole thing. Kimpus was basically a civil leader. the the Modocs divided their leadership into three types civil war and, um, not civil war, but civil leadership, war leadership, and religious leadership. And he was, he was a civil leader. However, there had been so much damage done to Modoc society that think that the the civil role and the, and the war role got very confused. So he was typically seen as the chief of the Modoc group that was, was in the lava beds even though he really wasn't particularly a war leader, he was really a civil leader, which means that he was very good at finding consensus. Um, the Monarchs, they they ran all their affairs by an open assembly where any man or woman in the tribe could speak and take part in a decision. And it was his job to try to move that whole group towards some kind of consensus. And he was very, very good at that. Um, his... in the so that he's he's seen as the key negotiator, sort of the, sort of the leader of these particular people. The in, in the middle of January, you know, there was this initial attack. It's called the first battle of the stronghold. Typically, the one that, that John Fairchild was involved in, and it, there were three hundred um, soldiers and militiamen up against only fifty five Indians. And the, the the army and the militiamen figured they were going to win. They were going to push these Modocs right out of there, and nothing flat. And by the end of the day, it had not gone very well. There were 11 dead on the United States side and 25 wounded. Some of them so badly wounded, they couldn't fight again. And on the MODOC side, there was nobody wounded, nobody hurt. They got through it with absolutely unscathed. And the army left so much weaponry and ammunition on the field that the MODOCs were fundamentally resupplied. And so this occasioned through a whole series of conversations going on in Washington, DC particularly with certain prominent people um, from Oregon who were there because they, they were um, in Washington because of the meeting of the Electoral College to to validate the election of U.S. Grant to a second term, they convinced the Department of the Interior and then uh, the Army, William Tecumseh Sherman, that it might be better to get the Modocs out of the lava beds by means of negotiation than it would be to try to dig them out militarily. And so there was a peace commission set up uh, and uh, several people, all of them Oregonians, which was a problem. It, the whole idea of the peace commission sounded better than it really was. And the problem was the personnel. Um, A.B. Meacham was appointed to chair it. He was not really a bad guy uh, by any means. He, was, he had a relatively good sense of fairness towards Indians. But unfortunately, the Modocs had had a really bad experience with him in 1870 when he forced them back on the reservation, and they were pretty soon having to kill their, stores, their horses in order not to starve. There was another guy named Jesse Applegate, and Jesse had a, a plan, a major plan with another with a landowner named Jesse Carr. They were going to build this huge uh, cattle ranching operation between Thule Lake and Clear Lake, and to make that work, they had to get rid of the Modocs. And so Jesse Applegate had been involved in a lot of the agitation among settlers, petitions and rumor spreading and so forth. What had what have then been, we would now probably call fake news, that had gone on in, in the Klamath Basin before that cavalry raid in November of 1872. And so the, the um, Indians simply did not trust Jesse Applegate. They knew what he was up to. So they began a kind of a series of attempted negotiations um, that were done curiously. There was never a meeting until the very end between the whole Peace Commission and the Indians. There were various um, go-betweens who went back and forth. At at one point, you're right, it did look like the Indians might surrender. Um, and there was an offer made uh, by Kent Poos uh, that the Indians would come out on a certain date and they would show up, and they there would be some kind of settlement. Um, he, the Indians didn't show up. So then they repeated this offer two days later. And once again, the Indians didn't show up. And it's not really clear what was going on at that time. Um, it, it probably is the case that there were struggles within the Modoc community about who was speaking for whom. There was one group, Kempus being the most prominent of them, Who really wanted to surrender? They wanted. He felt that they were between more between a rock and a hard place, and whatever happened, they would be destroyed. There were other people within the Modoc community who really wanted an apocalyptic war with the whites. They thought this. They needed to finally address this uh, force that was destroying them, and um, they kept pressing for warfare at the same time. And there was also it need to be said that. The particular offer of their surrender was extremely unclear. Um, it was unclear where they would go. Would they? They would not go. They could not stay in Oregon because of those killings of the settlers. Would they be sent to Arizona? Um, would they be sent to Oklahoma? And what would happen to the men who had killed the settlers? That was an open question that was just sitting there. And there were rumors going around, spread actually by a guy who worked for Jesse Applegate, that um the indians who had killed the settlers on Tulu lake would all be hanged so that of course took away any particular motivation among those men to surrender and so therefore the whole surrender offer just simply collapsed um and that set up what that happened on on uh, good friday
0: yes uh, the peace tent killings yes and the re- the revival of war can you uh, uh explain uh the the events leading up to, and then the actual peace tent killings on a good Friday. And then the subsequent battles, um, involving, for example, a curly headed doctor and his, uh, his, uh, ghost dance. Um, yeah. And in addition, can you touch on how, uh, us print cultures, newspapers and journals, uh, advanced, uh, the us cause or, or what role they played in the Modoc war?
1: Sure, you asked me a lot there. Let me see. I'll keep things straight.
0: There were a whole series
1: of things that led up to the peace tent killings, and um, as as you know, there's this distrust now going on with with the um, uh, with the peace commission, and. Given that level of distrust, uh, General E. R. S. Canby, who was the military commander of the District of the Columbia, so the the West used to be decided up in these large military districts, and he was the commander for that group, and he was therefore the basically the supreme commander on the ground in the MODOC w- War. He began taking over more and more of this negotiation. And it can be too. He's a little bit like Meacham in that he's not a bad guy. He's not an evil man. But he had a hubristic sense of his own understanding of Indians. And he didn't, he seemed to think that they were always going to trust him no matter what he did. And so there's a ceasefire all during this period of, of negotiation. And he uses that to reinforce his forces. He's bringing in more soldiers. They go from around 300 to in excess of 900. He doubles their artillery capacity. He adds boats that can go back and forth across Tule Lake and semaphores, and so they can send signals. And there were two camps of the soldiers, one on the eastern side of the lava beds and one on the western side. And he moves those two camps from five or six miles away on each side to only about a mile and a half. And so the Indians are really beginning to see that what he's doing is setting up to start the war again. That's how they perceive this and And what made it the thing that the, the curiously seemingly small incident that broke the camels' back was that right in the beginning of April, um a cavalry patrol was moving from that eastern camp to the western camp, and they bumped into a number of Modocs uh, unarmed, who were out grazing about three dozen horses. The cavalry grabs these horses and rides off with them, leaving these Modocs to scream and yell about it. And the next day, um, some of the Modocs showed up in the army camp because, again, there was a truce going on. And they say, Where are our horses? Why, what did you do? And Canby tells them, Don't worry about it. We'll take good care of the horses and you can have them when you surrender. This infuriated them. And there was a, a Modoc woman whose name was Toby Riddle. She was married to a white man and she spoke both English and Modoc. And she told Canby that the Modocs would never again trust her. They trust him, excuse me, because of that particular violation of faith, and so this this conflict going on within the Modoc camp between those who really wanted war and those who wanted to surrender really came to a head, and the war group shamed Poos into a scheme to smuggle weapons into a meeting between the peace commission and uh, the Modocs that was supposed to be unarmed, and. To kill all the peace commission at one in one fell uh, action to just knock them all off. Their logic apparently was based on Modoc war custom, which was in a in an Indian war in that part of the world, if you were able to kill the other guy's leader, they would probably pull withdraw from the battlefield. And so their notion was if they could kill Canby and they could kill other members of the peace commission. Um, that single blow. Would so demoralize the American troops that they would withdraw, and so uh, that's what happened on on Good Friday, uh, eighteen seventy-three. Um, actually, two of the members of the peace commission were in fact carrying concealed weapons. Uh, the Indians; uh, there were six or eight of them actually involved in the killings. Smuggled, smuggled. They carried uh, guns under their clothes. Got into the peace into the peace tent or outside the peace tent. Pardon me in this meeting with the commission, drew the guns. And when the smoke all cleared, they had killed Canby and a new member of the Peace Commission named uh, Eliezer Thomas. And A.B. Meacham was very badly wounded and mutilated and um, left them for dead. And, of course, this caused an absolutely huge outroar um, in the press because there was this, what would you call it, like a trope that constantly went through the press coverage that the Indians were fundamentally savage and bad, and whites were fundamentally civilized and good. And so a situation in which the Indians had, by means of trickery, killed a general and killed a minister, just made this war something um, even worse than it had been. It it made the war cosmic. Um, that's a word I borrowed from Mark Jurgensmeyer, as a sociologist. I, I actually knew Mark in graduate school many years ago. and. He talks about it when, a, when a war gets up so that it is a struggle between universal forces of good and universal forces of evil. That it's you know it's sort of like Paradise Lost in dubious battle on the plains of heaven, and that's what was going on now. And that had been fed large, to a large extent by the way the newspapers were reporting the war. And when the so they, for example, uh, very quickly the New York Herald, which was on the ground for the entire war. Uh, began talking about Canby and Thomas as martyrs to the cause, and they put them in this sort of heroic Christian light against these very dark and evil people who had who had treacherously murdered them, and so that on, for, where the, the Modocs utterly miscalculated what was going to happen, and instead of demoralizing the military, it actually um, energized it, uh, where they wanted this revenge. And uh, that set up the second battle of the stronghold uh, that started just three days later. And this time, now, because there's more than 900 troops, they were able to, by the second day, cut the Modocs off from uh, Tule Lake, which was their water supply. And the Indians, this is something that still amazes me. On the second night of this battle, at a little before midnight, before the moon came up, all about 100 and Fifty-five or one hundred and sixty of the one hundred and seventy odd people inside the inside the stronghold slipped out, and they had horses, they had dogs, they had newborn babies, and within hundred yards of them on one side were Worm Springs Indian Scouts, and within hundred yards on the other side was a cavalry unit that was had been around before. These guys were not newbies. And they were never detected. (laughs) And the Indians were able to hide out in the southern part of the lava beds for the next two to three weeks. So they evaded capture. And curiously, in that next period, they actually set up the worst military loss of the entire war uh, when only about 25 Modoc fighters ambushed a patrol that was three times their size um, at a place called Sand Butte. And managed to either kill or wound half of that group, of that patrol, including every single officer. It was just an absolutely amazing defeat. Um, but by that point, and, this, and that was largely engineered by Scarface Charlie, who was um, a very brilliant battlefield technician. Tactician, I mean. But that was kind of the last hurrah for the Modoc fighters. They set up, a, they tried another ambush. Uh, about two weeks later, uh, first part of May, at a place called, quite wonderfully, Sore Ass Lake. And it went completely awry. Um, by, the only one Modoc was killed, but it went really badly. And the army really, for the first time, stood up and fought back against the Indians. And all these months they had been living out in the open, uh, being poorly fed, um, not housed properly, poorly clothed, really began taking a toll. And that battle is really—that's the last true gunfight of the of the Modoc War—and it's the one that really signaled their breakdown and eventual surrender.
0: In terms of the of the print culture, just really briefly, can you touch on illustrator William Simpson? I remember him from the book; he really struck me, and his mm-hmm. his injection of imagination, um, transforming the Modocs, at least in in his illustrations, into uh creatures of a low race who carried within them something of night and cave
1: yeah sure simpson is a really fascinating guy <laughs> i agree with you i just <laughs> had to get him into the book he's he's a fascinating man he he was a, a british war correspondent who was also an illustrator uh, he was clearly a better illustrator than a writer but but he often went into war zones and he would send back reports and he would this was before before photography became nice and portable so he would do these uh, pen and ink sketches and, and sometimes watercolors. Um, he did some famous paintings, of one of them being the, the charge of the Light Brigade in the Crimean War. And he also covered wars, the Franco-Prussian War, the Abyssinian War. Um, and so he just happened to be going through San Francisco um, right around the time of the, the second battle of the um, stronghold and heard about the war up there and thought, oh, wow, what a great reporting opportunity. So he headed north, and he uh, there was a, another Britisher there, a guy named Edward Fox who worked for the uh, New York Herald, and he and Fox struck up an immediate friendship because they were both Brits. Uh, and so Simpson began doing drawings uh, from the battlefield, and then sending them back to the two papers, and for, he sold them first to like Harper's Weekly in this country, then they were also published in in Britain. And what is curious about these drawings is the the way that he draws them more from an imagined idea of what the Indians must have looked like than from the Indians who were actually there. So for example, um, if you look at his drawing of the killing of Canby, um, he draws Kippus almost as if he were an African American. He's He's got this heavy face with a They're kind of almost like a caveman too. It's like he's an African American caveman. He's got kind of a low head and big brows and thick lips and broad nose and so forth. And he does the same thing with Toby Riddle, who was this Modoc woman who served as a as a translator. And he makes them look like they are very much associated with a lower race than the Caucasian. Um, And remember, this is only the the. The very first true cave man or cave people uh, from Europe and the they were only really named in 1864. So this is just uh, eight years later. And so there's still kind of a buzz going on about human-like creatures who live in caves. And he did these drawings of the caves that Modocs were living in within the stronghold that really give one the sense of you're down into some kind of a world, something infernal. It's almost like it was an illustration from Dante's Inferno. And so, and then the other thing he did was he would take artifacts from other Indian cultures and ascribe them to the Modocs. So he has a drawing, supposedly, of an Indian scalping a soldier, which happened really rarely in this war. And he depicts these people just like they were. Plains Indians you know Comanches or Lakotas or Cheyennes they're wearing breech cloths and le- leggings and they're they they're not wearing any kind of a shirt they have a headband with an eagle feather and very long hair the only thing he got right was the long hair um, the Modocs were actually kind of a partially assimilated tribe they 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 dressed like sodbusters they wore the equivalent of blue jeans and calico shirts and hats and boots and um, they dressed the same way the settlers did there. But he did this, what would you call it? He kind of fancied it up. He created the reality he wanted to be true, even though he he, he may, he, I'm sure he actually knew it was not the case. He was doing something that was an imaginative exercise more than doing true journalism. And it was one of those things that fed into this print culture that you had asked me about. the uh, This depiction of Indians as dark and evil and lower versus um, whites who are light and higher and good.
0: For our our final uh, couple of questions, can you discuss the auctions, offers, and trade in Souvenirs of the Dead in the aftermath of the Fort Klamath war crimes trial for the complicity of six Modoc men in the peace tent killings that you uh, alluded to? Second, can you also touch on U.S. reception of A.B. Meacham's Modoc traveling show, um, even as most of the exiled Modocs after the war were perishing from malnutrition and disease in eastern Oklahoma?
1: Okay, sure. Um, yeah, th- th- there was a war crimes trial for six of the Modocs who were supposedly involved in the peace tent killings. And um, all six were convicted of, of war crimes. Uh, it's kind of an interesting footnote that this was the only time ever in American history that Indians were tried for war crimes. Um, why weren't they tried for murder? Well, the reason curiously was that would have allowed the state to try them because murder is a state crime, not a federal crime. And so like, the feds really wanted to keep hold of this particular trial. So they decided it could be done by military commission and they could be tried for war crimes. All six were, were convicted in a trial that took a whopping three days. And um, they were hanged. Four of them were hanged on October the 3rd, 1873. Two who were really bit players in the whole thing were pardoned at the very last minute. And after the hanging, as was sadly and kind of viciously the custom in these public executions of the time, people took souvenirs. And uh the souvenirs in this case consisted of things like um the nooses that the Modocs were hanged on. Some of them were the some of the ropes were cut up because they were multi-stranded and the strands of the rope were sold, actually by the soldiers and officers who had attended to the to the hanging. Uh Poose's hair had been trimmed to allow the, the, the noose to have a better fit on his neck before it killed him. And that was sold off. Um so there was this. Well, we, I really was, of course, this is our, our own sensibility. It's a, it was a really ghoulish trade in these mementos for this execution. However, the, the most ghoulish thing was what happened subsequently. And it is that the four dead men were taken off into a tent not very far from the hanging site. And a uh, army medical officer, uh, named John, uh, John McEldery, um, Henry McEldery, excuse me, he decapitated all four of these guys. He cut their heads off. And then he went through the whole process of skinning out and preserving the skulls, which were sent to the Army Medical Museum in Washington, D.C. about three weeks later. And they were on, they were sort of in the collection of that particular museum uh, clear up until the early 1990s when they were repatriated. And this was a supposedly scientific collection of native skulls, which actually served no particular, native, no particular scientific purpose. But it did, uh, to me, it was, it's a, it was a stunningly dehumanizing thing. It was essentially a government souvenir of these particular executions. Um, at the same time, the, the, there were 153 surviving Modocs who had been held in kind of concentration camp conditions at Fort Klamath in Oregon where the hanging happened. And they were all sent some of the way by cattle car to a, um, reservation in northeastern Oklahoma called Quapa. And conditions there were pretty bad. Um, there there was, often wasn't enough to eat. What there was to eat was generally poor quality. There was no medical care. And the Indians began getting sick. But at the same time, A.B. Meacham, the very same A.B. Meacham who had pushed the Modocs back on the reservation in 1870 and then had been badly wounded in the uh, peace tent killings, he um, tried to organize or did organize a speaking tour, uh, largely of the East and the Midwest. That he thought would make some money, um, that by selling tickets, that they and kind of exploiting or taking advantage of the um, uh, the notoriety of the Modoc War by having real people from the from the war, <laughs> that he could sell a lot of tickets that actually make these Indians some money. I mean, as part of his motivation was actually relatively altruistic. Um, so he took the, the, the Riddles, Toby Riddle and her husband Frank, and their their child uh, Jeff. And three Modoc men: Scarface, Charlie, Steamboat Frank, and uh, what was the other guy's name now? Um, Shatnessy, Jim. And he organized this speaking tour to go around the, the East and Midwest, and it actually got pretty good reviews. But the the problem was his timing on it was bad, because there was a recession had taken hold, and more and more people were being thrown out of work. And so, disposable income among the people who would seek this kind of thing out for entertainment was really going down, and so the ticket sales kept being quite poor. They couldn't really, they they really were not making ends meet. And finally, um, some philanthropists, uh, led by Cooper of Cooper Union in New York City, basically bailed the Meacham tour out and gave them the money to get back to Oregon. And so they back to Oregon and to Oklahoma. And so the Indians, these three Indian men and, and who really thought they were going to make some money in this particular enterprise, didn't. They they probably, if they had any money when they started, they had no more money at the end. And actually, Meacham himself didn't really make anything. And the riddles went back to California and lived there. And it, and, and that's kind of what highlights in part what was going on on the reservation in Oklahoma, in that um, the, 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 the death toll in Oklahoma was quite stunning. Um, there were one hundred and fifty 153 people who got there in late 1873. And by 1880, even though some of these people had had children, there were fewer than 90 left. So that group was dying off fast. And all three of the men who went on that tour died, each one of them from lung disease, before they were ever 45. Now, there was a lot of pneumonia, and there was a lot of tuberculosis on that reservation. And there was no medical care until almost the 1890s. So that that is a, a somber and terrible closing note to this whole story.
0: Indeed. One last thing: What can we expect from you next, Mr. McNally? Do you have any projects on the docket, or um, anything at all? Vacation?
1: <laughs> I've got some vacation. I'm going to go to go to go to Morocco in November with my partner, and well, so that that'll be fun. Um, I, I'm looking at two book ideas. Uh, one is a um, A publisher has approached me about the possibility of writing a biography of Kempus, the very leader, not just about the whole war, but that particular Indian leader. Now, this is still very much on the talking stage. And I'm also looking at a possibility of a book about um, Indians in in Yosemite um, and the whole story of how they were also caught up in this California genocide. And some of our ideas about wilderness and how people don't belong in wilderness come from what happened in Yosemite and and which curiously is is partly the um so pretty the writings and part of john muir and the whole notion of a depopulated wilderness and what does that mean this again is just a beginning idea um and so i i have a suspicion or i hope that within the next year i'll have one or both of these projects signed and we'll be working on them and i have no idea what the time frame would be um this the the the, the Kinpuss biography would probably go pretty quickly. The other book would take more time.
0: I'd look forward to both projects, actually. It's oh, very, that's very cool. All right. so, <laughs> so I'm glad to hear that. Mr. McNally, I really, really appreciate you uh, coming on to our uh, podcast. This is Ryan Tripp signing off for the New Books Network, the Native American Studies channel. I will hope, hope you'll join me next time, and we'll see you later.